Good morning, Church of 1122. Merry Christmas. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. And we're going to turn to the ever-popular Christmas passage of Acts chapter 6. Uh, Acts chapter 6, that's where we are in our, uh, in our world right now. But Merry Christmas. So glad that you're here. Grab that Bible. There's one in front of you if you'd like to raise your hand and have someone uh, hand you one. You can do that too. Uh, speaking of Christmas, I want to talk to you about our Christmas Eve service. Pretty stoked on this. Um, we don't have a Christmas Eve service. We have about 850 and so uh, we're excited about all 850 Christmas services that will be happening, or Christmas Eve services that will be happening uh, all over, literally, the world uh, the next few days. If you would like to host your very own Christmas Eve service, we have Christmas in a box at the Welcome Center and at the Connection Center. And so we know that the thing that has kept you from hosting your own church services in your home is, one, is you can't sing, and we affirm that in you. Um, most of you. There's some of you that can, but just some doesn't really work out so well. You know what I mean? If like three people are singing and one's doing it well, it's not awesome. So what we did is uh, our band recorded uh, Christmas carols that you'll, you'll sing together. And um, if you sing like I do, just turn it up really, really loud and you'll sound great. And then also uh, uh, the preaching part usually freaks people out. So I handle that for you. And uh, it's really not that hard. You just kind of talk for an hour. And so that's all on here, but it's about a 10-minute message, not an hour. And the idea being that you would just invite people to come over to your house and you could host your very own Christmas Eve service. Do it however you want to. If you just want to get together as friends and family in your neighborhood to have a, uh, that kind of Christmas Eve service, that's cool. Um, or if you want to reach out to some non-Christians that wouldn't come to a church for a Christmas Eve service, but they might come to your house, then praise God, you could do it that way too. And literally, this is happening around the world. This is pretty cool. It wasn't necessarily our intention, but there are people around the world that are plugged in with the Church of 1122. And so there will be Christmas in a Box services in places like Wales, Paris, Puerto Rico, and Palatka. Can you believe that? All right. So praise God. I've been told that Palatka is the Paris of Florida, but, um, but I think wee wee and Palatka mean something completely different. So we got a prayer request this week from a 16-year-old in our church that really uh, captures the heartbeat of why we don't do a Christmas Eve service here, but we do 850 all over the place. It's from a 16-year-old in our, in our uh, student ministry, and she says this, Continue to pray for my grandparents. Pray that they will come to our house for Christmas in a box. Pray for me to love and bring them closer and to not push them away. So there's grandmama and granddaddy that won't come to church, but they'll come to their granddaughter's house, and she is hosting a, a, a Christmas in the box service at her house. So that's the heartbeat behind it. We're, gonna, we're praying for every one of you, the guys that are hosting those kind of services. And if something awesome happens, man, if you would just let us know, we would be, uh, we'd be happy to just celebrate that. All right, Acts chapter 6, here we go. We're in part 2 of Do You See What I See? The idea being that uh, when we see as God sees, that we're more likely to do what God says. Tonight, or today, what I want to talk about is that uh, when we see God, everything changes. I mean, when we see God, everything changes. Last week, we, we talked about in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, that the needs of the church had outgrown the ability of the apostles or the preachers or the church staff to meet the needs of the people in the church. And so they assigned um, seven people the duty of of taking food to the needy widows in, in and around that community. And then we're going to pick it up and we're going to kind of focus in on one of those uh, kind of waiters. And his name's Stephen. So Acts 6, 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. To which, if you paid attention last week, you might, go, you might say, Well, wait a minute. He was just like the head waiter. 
How is that a great and wondrous sign? I mean, he was taking food to some needy people. Well, there's two different things here. One is that in God's economy, there are no small jobs. That in God's economy, whether you're the, the Apostle Peter preaching the good news to thousands uh, uh, in Jerusalem, or you're Stephen who's taking a little bit of bread to some needy people, they are both great and wondrous. There are no small jobs at church. And then there's this idea in God's economy of uh, uh, that Jesus taught on called the parable of the talents. And the idea there is if you'll just be faithful in whatever little thing God has given you, then God will give you more and more responsibility. That's just how that works. And so what's going on here is Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, he was, he was faithful with the little that God had given him. And now, after just a very short time, he's doing great wonders and signs among all the people. Verse 9. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Verse 11. And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. In other words, they arrested him. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. They were talking about the temple. And the law. They were talking about Moses' law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, talking about the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So we, we learn a lot about what Stephen was doing. Stephen fundamentally was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was preaching and teaching over and over and over that it is not your tradition that saves you. You can go to the temple all you want to, but it is not your church tradition that saves you. Your church attendance doesn't save you. In this case, he was saying that, that uh, sacrificing the right animal at the right time on the right season is not going to save you. And being good isn't going to save you because there's a couple of things about it. You can never be good enough. And you don't even know how good you have to be to be saved. So the temple or the law are going to save you. The only hope that you have is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the coming Messiah. That Jesus came to shed his blood for sinners Black-hearted, wretched sinners like me and like you. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're saved. All right? And this, anytime you preach the gospel, anytime you preach the free gift of salvation that costs Christ everything, religious people get ticked off. They go, yeah, no, 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 but you don't understand. Yeah, I know he saves me, but you got to do a little bit. I mean, you can't say you love Jesus and do this bad stuff too. It makes religious people angry. It made them angry in the first century. It makes them angry in the 21st century. But Stephen just preached the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And what you know, especially, especially if you've tried church before, but you really just tried religion instead of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know it's exhausting. It is exhausting. I know this because my kids are trying so hard to be on that nice list, right? They know there's a lot of naughty that you've got to make up for in us for between Thanksgiving and Christmas. You've got to slide on over to nice, all right? Okay? And so we got Elf on the Shelf watching from our house, right? And I tell them, I tell them, hey, listen, look, because parents ask me what I tell my kids about Santa. I'm going to tell you, Santa is wretched and Jesus is righteous, all right? Santa is about the law. You got naughty and you got nice. You either get presents or you get cold, and it's based on your performance. But Jesus is full of grace and mercy, praise God. There's no coal in a stocking with Jesus. You get what you don't deserve with Jesus. So that's how we do it in our house. And, and... <clears throat> But you make some people mad. Well, make some people mad. And the religious people are mad here because 
because Stephen is preaching the gospel, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so it's not the temple. It's not the law. It's Christ's death and resurrection that pays a sin debt that, that we could never pay and that buys us that relationship, that righteousness, that right standing before God. And so they're angry and they arrest him. And let me just say this. Um, I pity the church. Woe to the church that is more about tradition and rules than transformation and relationship. That the gospel is not about... Are traditions cool? Yes and amen. Okay, they're cool. It, if, as long as we do what Pastor Ryan talked about, as long as the traditions are one explained so everybody knows what's going on. Because you, have you ever been a part of a church that has a tradition and you're not a part of that tradition? And you're like, oh, we're all standing up. Oh, everybody sat down. What's happening? I don't know what to do. Okay, it's horrible. It's horrible. So that's not cool. Uh, but when a tradition is rightly explained so everybody knows we're going to do this thing together and every year just to soften our hearts to what matters most, that's cool. Because it's really about transformation and not about tradition. It's not about rules, but it's about that relationship. And so... But Stephen is preaching and teaching the gospel. In this next verse, I want to spend all the rest of our time on. Verse 15. So you've got to get this in your mind. These uh, religious leaders have surrounded Stephen. They put him on trial. And if you grew up around church or Sunday school or you've heard about what happens to Stephen before, it's not going to end well. Two chapters from now, Stephen is going to be the first Christian martyr. And so they are standing around him. And this is what... um, This is what they notice in verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean he was chubby. You know, a little chubby cherub pictures, all right? It doesn't mean that. And and it's it's also not like a compliment, like, um, you know, like you tell your girl, like, baby, you got the face of an angel, all right? It's not like that at all. It's really a reference to two other places in the scripture. There are two other places, one in the Old Testament and one in the gospel, that talks about somebody's face looking different. So if you've got your Bible, uh, go backwards to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. Exodus, like 32 is, is where we'll be. I'll pick up reading in 33, but I've got to tell you what's going on here. <clears throat> you see, there was this guy named Moses. Maybe you heard of Moses. Uh, Moses was out in the desert. He encounters God through this burning bush. The burning bush tells him uh, to go to the Pharaoh and let my people go. And so, you know, they had this conversation about that. And then Moses goes to the Pharaoh. And if maybe you've seen the movie with Charlton Heston, let my people go, right? Remember that? And then uh, the Pharaoh, after 10 plagues, and the last plague was the Passover that Pastor Ryan told us about, then they let the people go. And Moses is leading this group of people. And, and they get to the Red Sea, and, the, and it's impassable. And the Egyptian army is bearing down behind them, it looks like. Looks like it's going to be a short trip. And then God parts the Red Sea. And then God's people walk on dry land through the Red Sea. And then he swallows up the Egyptians. And now they are out in the desert. And God's going to make a covenant with his people. And so he invites Moses up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And Moses is on the mountain with God in God's very presence. And the Bible says that, that God literally writes with his hand or his finger the Ten Commandments on, the ten, on these two tablets that Moses has. But right in the middle of that exchange, this is like, this is Exodus chapter 1 through 32 in a minute, all right? Right in the middle of that exchange, God says, time out. Uh, we got a problem here, Houston. Uh, Moses, your people, now, now he doesn't claim them as his anymore, all right, mom? So this is biblical. When you do that, us, you need to talk to your son. And I'm thinking, do I have one that you don't, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so you need to go talk to your people, Moses, because your people have fashioned and are worshiping an idol, And so God essentially tells Moses, you can worship whoever you want to, 
But if, if you want to worship idols and if you want to worship other gods, that's fine, but I'm not going with you. You can go on to the promised land by yourself. Go ahead. And so Moses gets mad and Moses comes down Mount Sinai and he sees, he sees his very own people worshiping this golden calf. Aaron, his brother, has gotten gold from, from all the people in the, in the nation there and he's fashioned it together and he's made this golden calf and the people are bowing down and they're worshiping the calf because they think Moses has been on the mountain with God too long and so they're not getting what they want so they just decide to worship their own thing. And Moses comes down and he's angry and he slams the Ten Commandments down and breaks them. So some of you with anger issues, okay, you and Moses are the same. So he breaks those things. And then, then he does the coolest thing. I love this part. He gets, the, he gets the golden calf and he melts it down and he sprinkles the melted down golden calf into the water and he makes all the people drink it. That's in the Bible, okay? So if you've ever wanted to wash out your kid's mouth with soap, I, I think it's biblical, all right? Oh, you want to worship an idol? You better eat it. That, that's kind of where he's going. And then he goes to his brother, and he's like, how dare you? What are you doing? And then his brother's excuse, you need to read the Bible. His brother's excuse is, well, I just put this gold in the fire, and out came the golden calf. Really? Really? It, it reminds me of when your kid's mouth is covered in chocolate, and, you're, and you go, why did you eat the chocolate? It wasn't me. I, I, a guy came in and smeared chocolate on my mouth. It wasn't me. It's also biblical, all right? That's how people just act. So... <clears throat> Uh, all kind of crazy stuff happens. 3,000 people die. you get into that later. Moses eventually with his people says, okay, I'm going to go back up on the mountain in the presence of God, and I'm going to see if we can reinstitute this covenant between us and God. And so he goes up back on the mountain, and he begs God for forgiveness. He begs God for forgiveness. Because the, the last conversation that they've had is essentially God tells the people, just go on without me. If that's what you want to worship, go ahead. Go on without me. I'm not, I'm not sharing my glory. All right, you can either worship me or you can worship something else, but you don't get both. So just go on without me. So in Exodus chapter 30, 33, beginning in verse 15, this is Moses talking to God. And he, that's Moses, said to him, that's God. So in God and Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. In other words, um, we've heard that the promised land is the land flowing with milk and honey, and we've heard those circumstances are amazing. And I know and I experience that the circumstances of wandering around in the desert with grumbling and complaining, um, uh, idol-worshiping people is a pain. But, but uh, if you're not coming with us, then I don't want to go. Because uh, I would rather be with you in terrible circumstances than without you in the best of circumstances. So he says to him, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, what Moses is asking God is, God, we just want to be with you we want to experience your manifest presence. It is your presence that makes us distinct, and that's it. Church, you know what makes us distinct as a people? It is the manifest presence of God. It is experiencing God as your heavenly Father. Not just knowing about Him, but experiencing His presence that makes us distinct. Do you think it's our service in our community that makes us distinct? No. The Rotary Club and the senior class of every high school serves... They make you have a, a, a certain amount of service hours in your community to even graduate high school. Everybody, who doesn't serve? Everybody serves the community now. Do you think it's our fellowship that makes us unique? No. UNF uh, fraternities and sororities have a great fellowship going on. 
They call each other brothers and sisters and, and get tattoos that they'll regret later. I mean, it is tight. Is worship, the fact that we get together and sing and raise our hands, does that make us distinct? No. No. It's going to be happening in about 45 minutes. Right down the street in Jacksonville, right? People will have their hand, at least for the first, you know, until they score 100 points on us. But at first, it's up and it's cheering. Look, I support a team on Saturdays where we literally sing, especially in the fourth quarter, with all hands up and four on each, which is really eight, but don't tell the Georgia people, okay? We got it up like this, singing, glory, glory to old Georgia. Praise God. So it does not make you distinct when you get together and sing to something. You know what makes us distinct? The manifest presence of God. It is the, it's experiencing Him that makes us distinct. That's why I'm saying woe to the church that is more about tradition and rules than it is transformation and relationship because what you can miss out on, you can go to church and do, you can do a lot of church stuff and miss out on the very manifest presence of God that He actually wants to engage with you here, that you could meet Him and be in His presence. Verse 17 And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, don't miss this, listen. Please show me your glory. Please, God, show me your glory. Because Moses gets it. Moses knows that the only answer for him and his people are not more commandments and not more rules. The only hope is that people would encounter the manifest presence of God. And so he he says, God, please show me your glory. And then for the next chapter, there's this great dialogue between Moses and, and God. And, and God essentially just goes, you can't handle my glory. All right? You, you, you think you want to see my glory, but if you see my face, it'll kill you because I'm an almighty, sovereign God, and you are a sinful, wretched man. And so if you were to even witness that, it's too much for you. But here's what I'll do. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to cover your face with my hand and then I'm going to pass by and kind of turn on the afterburners and then I'll, it's a little loose translation, but you get the idea. And then you pull, I'm going to pull my hand away and you're going to get to see my glory pass by. And so that's what he does. He, he props, uh, props Moses up in the rock and he passed by and pff, turns on the afterburners and then he removes his hand and Moses experiences just, just kind of the trail end of the glory of God. And so then if you skip down to chapter 34, verse 29, and Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He'd been up in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights again, and he comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony. They rewrote the Ten Commandments. The two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And as he came down from the mountainside, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. You see, because he had been in the very presence of the Almighty God, when he comes down from the mountain, after he had been in this relationship with God, he just looked different. His face just looked different. And one of the things is that he didn't even realize it. Let me just warn some of you that hadn't seen your family in a year, and you're going to see them on Christmas Eve. Especially the 169 of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ since we opened the doors here. You're different. You're not the same you. And when somebody comes up to you and say, wow, you look different. It's not because you lost weight. You probably didn't. But what it is, is that the Holy Spirit now lives in you. And the glory of God is shining through you. And I'm telling you, your face looks different. And I need to just tell you this, 1122. I love, love, love preaching to our people. Okay, I love it. Because your face actually represents that you're stoked to be here and that Jesus lives in you. 
Because I get to preach in some places now, and I look out amongst the audience and think, do y'all even know him? If so, you need to tell your face, okay? You look terrible. <laughs> Literally. Look like you were weaned on a pickle, just all. <laughs> but if you know him, right, then, then I think my kids taught me, your face will surely show it, all right? That's kind of how this works. And so when Moses comes down, his face is different. Now, but, but the Bible says of the people of Israel is that when they, say, when they see Moses' face glowing, that they are afraid. I mean, they're thinking, wow, we thought he was mad the first time. Now he's radioactive. Okay, we are dead. And so he had to put a veil on his face because everybody was so afraid. And so it, it's an allusion to what, uh, what Stephen, what's going on with Stephen. Now, the only other place in the Bible that I know of where somebody has a glowing face is in Matthew chapter 17. It's it's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. It says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. So now Jesus' face is shining like the sun. That he is, Jesus is transfigured, he is exposing his glory to the people that are up on the mountain. And his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. I mean, you see, see what's going on here? And there's Peter and James and John, and Jesus has invited them up to the mountain, right? Jesus and his three favorites. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but Jesus had some, and he brought them up on the mountain. And, and, and God demonstrates his glory to Peter and James and John. And there's Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. And I can just imagine Moses talking to Jesus, going, look, your face is going, I remember that happened to me. You know, they're just having this conversation. And then Peter speaks up, because Peter always speaks up in verse 4. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. It is good that we are here. Some of you, that's all you need to hear today. You've been out of church for a long time, and you're back in here today, and you're in the presence of the Almighty God, and you forgot what it was like, and it is good that you were here. There are some of you that are in circumstances, and you don't know what the answer is, but when you walked in here, and the music started, and the person next to you, the hands went up, and you went, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in one of these, okay? But then, after you were into it a little bit, you better watch out. You get next to some of the hand raisers, boy, it starts getting on you, doesn't it? You start getting on you, and you start going, wow, wow, this isn't Christian karaoke. This person actually believes it. They're feeling something, and I want to feel some of what they're feeling. It's the manifest presence of God, okay? And I want to warn you people in the back row, at the Church of 1122, the Holy Spirit makes it all the way to the back, okay? He doesn't stop in the third row, all right, all the way through. And then before you know it, man, the Spirit is stern. It is good to be in here, and you find yourself in one of these. Uh Uh-oh. If you've ever worshipped like this, ah, you're two weeks away from, it's kind of a step, all right? You're going to be Statue of Liberty next, that's next, that's you, and before you know it. Now, and it is just good to be here. It is just good to be in the presence of, of God's glory, and that's what Peter is saying. It is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and Moses and Elijah. He's like, we'll be homeless, we don't care. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. So there's, there's, uh, there's Peter making his building plans. It is good to be in the presence of the Lord, and we just want to stay here with you. And then God's glory descends on the mountain, and behold, my Son. You know God's got to have a deep voice, all right? 
he can't talk like me. Hey, how's everybody doing? You know, he can't. He's got to have that Darth Vader, James Earl Jones thing going, right? Behold. But when the disciples hear this, what do they do? Boom, they're terrified. They fall on their face. Why? Because they know the story of Moses. They know God told Moses, if you behold my glory, if you see my face, then surely it will kill you. And so they are afraid and they fall down on their face because they know they are in the manifest presence of God. They know they are, if, if they're not careful, they might look up and see God's glory. And then look what happens with their faces down and terrified, verse 7, but Jesus came and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus only. And Jesus steps in and says, hey boys, step up. Hey, you don't have to be afraid anymore. You see, Moses' situation and your situation is really different. And the reason, it's because of me. It's because of Jesus. You want to see? You want to see the glory of God? Open your eyes and see only Jesus. You want to see the very face of God? Then you look into the face of his son, Jesus Christ, and you see the glory of God. Guess what, church? Did you know that by the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I have been invited into the very presence, into the very manifest presence of God right here in Jacksonville any time we gather together? That when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he cried out, it is finished. And you ask, what is finished? Well, what is finished is that our sin debt has been paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And when he cried that out in the first century, in Jerusalem, there was an earthquake, and when the earthquake happened, there was a curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, which represented God's very presence from normal, ordinary, sinful people like me and you. And during that earthquake, that curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom, and everyone by the blood of the Lamb was invited into the very presence of God. And because of Jesus' invitation, because of Jesus's blood, then he can say, rise and have no fear. You see, it's why, if you go all the way back to the book of Acts, it's why Stephen, who, in front of this crowd of men that was about to kill him, it's why his face was shining like an angel. I hate to give away the end of next week's sermon, but I have to. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 and 55 say this, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. This is the group of um, this is that Jewish ruling council that were around Stephen. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that's Stephen, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. See, I mean, do you see how amazing this is? Stephen is in the worst of the worst of the worst circumstances. And instead of his face reflecting his circumstances, his face reflects his Savior. Do you know why? Because he didn't have his eyes on his circumstances, but he had his eyes on his Savior. He did what Jesus told those disciples to do. Get up and look at me and have no fear. I know some of you are in some horrendous circumstances. Some of you are in some horrible circumstances. For some of you this year, I mean, I know part of being the, the pastor of a large church, the, especially our church, Church of 1122, there are some families who, whose worst nightmares have come true. But as I look at them walk this thing out, and they don't have all the answers, and they can't answer the question why, but I look at their face, I see them reflecting Jesus and not their circumstances. 
And not that the circumstances aren't hard and painful, oh my gosh, more than I could ever describe. But what I see is the face of an angel. What I see is the glory of God being reflected on the face of his people who are looking at him and him alone. And you see, it's what Stephen was doing. That God didn't change his circumstances. And Stephen never even asked for it to be changed. Because following Jesus was more than enough. It was bigger than whatever circumstance he was about to go through. And so let me just warn you, church. Let me just warn you. I put it as the bottom line in our notes. And, and listen, and I'm really, I'm just talking. If you're not a Christian yet, let me just warn you too. But if you, if you call Jesus your Savior, let me warn you. That we should seek not merely his provision and protection and principles, but we must seek his manifest presence. That we, we shouldn't just seek his provision and protection and principles. Because there's a lot of folks that that's how we treat God. We're not really seeking God. We're just seeking what God can provide for us. And it goes kind of like this. God, I'll follow you. I'll obey you. I'll do all the right things. I won't go see rated R movies unless they are about the crucifixion of you. All right? I won't, um, I won't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. I'll do all the right things. But if I do that, you owe me. You've got to hook me up. You need to bless my business and you need to bless my family and you need to bless me. And it's a form of idolatry. It is a form of idolatry because then Jesus is not your Lord. You are the Lord and he serves you. And you think if I just pray the right thing and go to church enough and put enough in the offering box, then God, you owe me. And it's exhausting and it's very disappointing because God never promised it that way. That we surrender to him, not the other way around. Now, are his provisions good? Every good and perfect gift is from above. But they are secondary to his presence. And some of us just seek his protection. God, you owe me safety and you owe me health. He never promises it. He never pro- he promises an eternity with him. In fact, you know, if you take the words of Jesus pretty seriously, he kind of promises that if you follow him, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. He said, don't be surprised when you face trouble of many kind. The world hated me. They're going to hate you too. And some of us just seek his principles. Now, again, all three of those things are good. They're just not ultimate. Am I for biblical principles? Are you kidding me? It's what we talk about every week. That uh, the creator who created you, created you to live in such a way, and it would be wise of you to apply uh, the owner's manual to the way you were created. But if you think just, just chasing after the principles of God to be a better version of you is the answer, it's not. That what we need, what we need, what is primary is his presence. What is primary is that relationship with him. What is primary is that experience with the almighty God. His, the theological term is his manifest presence. And, and I know some of you say, yeah, but what do you mean his presence? I thought his presence was everywhere. Well, yes, that's true, but that's called omnipresence. Uh, Psalm 139 says, if I go into the heavens, you are there. If I go to the depths, you are there. Uh, You're before me, behind me, you hem me in. So yes, God is presence everywhere. He is present everywhere. That's his omnipresence, all right? And so for me to say, you need to be in the presence of God, and you're thinking, well, isn't he everywhere? It's like being in the pool, and somebody say, get wetter. And you're like, it's all wet. I don't know what you mean. But his manifest presence means that, that God... In, in significant and experiential ways, makes himself known to his people. Like, like when the Bible says that God draws near to the brokenhearted. That when you are in pain and when you are in loss, that it's my prayer that you would experience the manifest presence of God. That he shows up in a, in a shepherding and supernatural kind of way. 
In the book of James, it says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. In other words, God rewards those who seek after his presence. That as you're taking one step towards him, he rushes out to the end of the driveway and throws you a party that you did not deserve. That's his manifest presence. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. So yes, it is true that God's presence will be in this room at 6 o'clock this evening. But it is more true that he's in here when we are lifting up our voices and worshiping him. And praise God that he has sent us a worship pastor that gets the manifest presence of God. That we don't just do Christian karaoke and cover songs so that everybody will think, wow, how impressive is our band. That that's not what it's about. But it's about lifting up the name and the renown of Jesus. And that he is the audience and we're all singing to him and not the other way around. It's not like our band is singing to us. And thank goodness that, that we understand that here at the Church of 1122. And my mom clapping over here. Thanks for that. Um, but what you need, what you need more than anything is an encounter with him. It's how Stephen could be in the face of, of his worst nightmare coming true. And his face could be different. It's how Moses, it's why Moses on the top of the mountain when nobody else in his world that he was supposed to be leading was doing right. It's why he would cry out to God, God, if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. God, please show me your glory. It's why Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration could say, it is good to be here. Can we just stay here forever? Now the answer is no. The answer from Jesus is no. You get to experience that manifest presence and it fuels you to go and do what I have commanded you to do. You seek after me and my presence. And then those other things, my provision and my protection, those things are secondary. And so listen, folks, what we need as a church is we need to experience him, experience his presence. It's what Christmas is all about. It's what Christmas is all about. That God stepped out of heaven and was born the King of kings and the Lord of lords as a baby in a manger so that we could behold his glory. And so, maybe you've heard these Christmas verses before, but in light of his manifest presence, hear these words. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, mean. God with us. That that baby in the manger grew up to be the savior of the world. And that by his blood shed on the cross and through his resurrection that we are invited into the manifest presence of God. Look, I know in a room this size with this many people, there are some of you and your situation is horrendous and you need an experience with the manifest presence of God. And there are some of you, and life couldn't be going any better, and don't be distracted. What you need is to experience the manifest presence of God. And the crazy thing about it is that God desires it too. That God desires it, and that you can come running into his arms with no fear. No fear. Because when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness. For anybody that has surrendered their life to Christ, he sees the righteousness of his very own son. And so without fear, you can come running into his arms. Just like when I get home today, my kids will come running into my arms, their dad, with no fear, just to be in my presence. And that's what he desires. We're going to close with a song called Show Me Your Glory. It's a, it's a song that a, um, 
really this worship movement called Jesus Culture put together. And they wrote the song uh, in light of Moses on Mount Sinai and in, in, in light of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. And the song is the prayer of Moses. God, please show me your glory. And the, the difference between Moses' prayer and our prayer is, but we don't have to be afraid because of what Jesus did on the cross. But let me just warn you. You start praying a prayer like, God, show me your glory. And, and, and if God thinks you're being serious and you experience the manifest presence of God, you experience the glory of God, then let me warn you, it's different. All right, it's just different. You, you can't just experience the manifest presence of God and then just go eat ribs right afterwards and nothing's different, okay? It, 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 we just don't just go to church. It'll change you. So let me warn you, if you're not ready for change, if you're not ready for your face to be glowing, if you're not ready for everything to be different, then just, just stand there quietly. But if you want to experience the manifest presence of God, your heavenly Father that loved you enough, that stepped out of heaven, that was born in a manger but went to a cross, then with everything you're made of and with no fear, you cry out to an almighty God, God, show me your glory. Would you please stand? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, you are so good to us and we do not deserve it. God, forgive us. Forgive every single one of us. Those of us that um, have just received you and those of us that have been walking with you for a long, long time. God, forgive us when we try to act like we're in charge and you work for us. When, when we think you owe us provision or protection. God, what we need more than anything else is just your presence. God, may we be like Stephen. God, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of doubt, in the face of economic downturn, in the face of whatever. God, in the face of our worst nightmares coming true. God, may our face not reflect our circumstances, but our Savior. God, may we just seek your presence. And so, Lord, in this place, by the blood of Jesus, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, God, we ask for a supernatural anointing of your presence in this place. Not to be better versions of, of ourselves, God, but just to know you, just to experience you in a relationship that causes transformation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to respond. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings in the offering boxes or by taking them to the uh, giving kiosk in the back. We respond by offering prayers to God. If you need to pray, come on and pray. And like never before, we're going to respond all joining our voices together and crying out to God. God, show me your glory. Let us respond.